Acts 24, verse 1. Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain order named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor, Felix, against Paul. If you're joining our study already in progress, quick refresher, back in chapter 21, Paul's in Jerusalem, and at the suggestion of other believers, he's making an offering, sort of a unity gesture, at the temple, which was either misunderstood by people watching or it was misunderstood by people watching. Either way, the crowd comes for Paul. He's rescued by the Roman commander of the detachment of troops stationed right outside the temple courtyard, who then, chapter 22, gives Paul a strange opportunity. Paul says, hey, can I go talk to the crowd? That seems like a dopey idea, but the Roman commander went along with it, and it ended badly. It ended with the crowd again calling for Paul's death. The Roman commander thinks... Maybe I should just torture this guy and get to the bottom of what's going on. That was the end of chapter 22. But he rethought that approach when he learned that Paul was a Roman citizen and you don't get to torture Roman citizens. Chapter 23, his fallback plan was he called together not the entire Sanhedrin, not the entire 70-member ruling council, but a few members of it as an informal gathering. Can you help me understand what's going on and why you guys hate Paul so very much? So Paul is, 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 is brought before them. They have a few words, and very quickly the thing descends into a riot. So Paul's again taken into Roman custody, but when the commander learns of an assassination plot, this was last week, still verse 23, he decides to wash his hands of the whole affair. He's had enough of Paul. Orders Paul conveyed under heavy guard to the governor's palace in Caesarea. Now you saw this map last week. What you didn't see is I got a new toy. From Jerusalem. From Jerusalem to Caesarea. You see? Yeah. And when he got there, yeah, cool. When he got there to the, to the palace that Herod had built, there, okay, I'm done. Step back from the laser pointer, Patrick. You know, the commander said, this, this needs to be the governor's problem. He sends Paul there under guard. So as chapter 24 opens, Felix, the governor, the technical title is procurator of Judea. He'd been in that role since 52 AD. This is 58 plus or minus AD. Felix is trying to get to the bottom of who Paul is and why this has suddenly become his problem. Why is this man here? So first he listens to the Jewish leadership. The, the prosecuting attorney speaks first, if you will. This isn't the whole Sanhedrin. This is Ananias. He's the high priest, and he's there representing the Sadducees, who controlled the priesthood at that time. The elders were there because the scribes and the elders at that time were primarily composed of Pharisees. Who's Tertullus? He's an orator. He's probably local talent. They might have brought him with them from Jerusalem. More likely, he was somebody that they hired there, an expert in Roman law. Hey, speak for us to Felix, because you can kind of translate between how we're thinking and what Felix is thinking. 
So when he was called upon, the prosecutor, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness, blah, 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 blah. He's just stroking his ego. He's, he's just buttering Felix up. The truth is, Felix wasn't a good guy. Secular history tells us he was cruel, he was lustful, he had wife after wife, he killed enemy after enemy, and contrary to what Tertullus just said, he wasn't even particularly good at his job. While he was in power, 52 to 60 AD or so, there was insurrection after insurrection, rebellion after rebellion. And, and Judea wasn't safe. There were bands of roaming thieves, which he knowingly allowed to continue to operate as long as they cut him in for a percentage of what they stole. So he's not a good guy, but he is the guy who's going to decide this case. So Tertullus starts off buttering him up. And then verse 4, he gets to the point. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, because I know that you know that you're great, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. Just get on with it. So he brings the charges, verse 5. We found this man a plague. Some translations say pest, but pests carry disease. So that's the point. He's a plague. He's a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. There's charge number one. And he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Charge number two, he even tried to profane the temple. Charge number three, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. And you wouldn't have had to deal with this, but the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. So it's his fault that we're all here, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain the, all of these things of which we accuse him. The Jews also assented, maintaining, yes, these things were so. So they're bringing three charges against Paul, crimes against Rome. There's a worldwide uprising of Jews everywhere, and it's his fault. Crimes against Israel. He's, he's splitting us. He's the ringleader of this dissentious faction of the Nazarenes. And then crimes against God, desecrating the temple. Why would Felix care about desecrating the temple? He wouldn't accept that. We talked about this in chapter 21. Rome had allowed the Jews to exercise capital punishment. It was the only uh, situation in which they were allowed to administer the death penalty during this time, but they could, even if it, the perpetrator were a Roman citizen, if that individual were desecrating the temple. So that's why it's getting thrown in there. Point being, they're not hunting with a rifle, they're hunting with a shotgun. Firing off a whole bunch of charges, hoping that, that one of them lands. In verse 8, Tertullus says to Felix, you'll find that these things are true. In the verse 9, the high priests and the elders, that's right, they're true. But then it's Paul's turn. Then Paul, verse 10, after the governor had nodded him to speak, answered, okay, it's my turn. And, and as much as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Paul doesn't flatter him. He just acknowledges, yeah, you've been in this job like six years, give or take, so you know a thing or two about Jewish culture, and that's good. And what else is good, Felix, is that you know the right people to talk to. Because when you talk to them, verse 11, you may ascertain that it's no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Why is that relevant? Because this doesn't need to be a he said, she said. This whole thing happened less than two weeks ago. All kinds of people were there. All kinds of people were eyeball witnesses. You should ask them what happened. 
In the meantime, I'll tell you my version of what happened. They neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. Verse 13, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. First charge, stirring up rebellion against Rome. Never happened, no one can say that it did. And if we think back to chapter 21, Paul wasn't even particularly evangelizing before he was attacked by the crowd. Paul was participating in a Jewish ritual at the suggestion of Jewish believers as a gesture of unity towards the Jews in Jerusalem. So he wasn't even talking about Jesus. But I confess to you, verse 14, that according to the way which they also call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Second charge. You say, I'm the ringleader of some band of, of rebels called the Nazarenes. Well, I mean, we don't call ourselves that. We call ourselves the way. But the way, Christianity, whatever you want to call it, it's not what they say. It's not contrary to Judaism. Jesus... Paul is having this conversation without using the J word. But Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism. Jesus isn't contrary to the law or to the prophets, verse 14. He's the one anticipated by the law and spoken of by the prophets. Which is interesting because not only were they confused about it, but if you talk to Jewish people in your life today, many of them will be confused about it as well. If, if you approach a, a, a Jewish person and give any indication that you want to talk about the gospel, that you want to talk about the Bible, that you want to talk about your faith, the first thing you're likely to hear is, wait, I don't believe in Jesus. That's almost a defining quality for 21st century Judaism. We're God's people who don't believe in Jesus. Well, hang on. Do you believe in a Messiah? Because Hebrew scripture, that what we call the Old Testament, from beginning to end, speaks of a Messiah, a Redeemer, one who will save Israel. God starts talking about it in Genesis 3 and doesn't stop talking about it all the way through Malachi. But it's interesting, the number of Jews today, if you engage them in conversation, if you ask them about what their scripture teaches, doesn't your Bible talk about a Messiah? Many of them will say, I don't know. Many of them will say, well, that's spiritual or figurative. Many of them will say, well, we misunderstood that. Because to have a conversation about a Messiah is to invite a conversation about, well, then why isn't Jesus him? And that's a conversation that not a lot of Jewish people in my life really want to get into. It's not that different than when I engage with my Catholic family members. And they want to say, yeah, yeah, you're Protestant, you don't believe in Mary, and you, you think that communion is just a symbol, when it's not the actual body and blood of Jesus. Well, hang on. Let's, let's not talk about what we disagree about. Let's talk about what we agree about. Let's talk about the cross. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross as payment for your sins? Yes. Here's where you can slip in a curveball, though. Do you believe that he paid for all of your sins? And a surprising number of them will say yes. Isn't it interesting, though, that the official position of the Catholic Church is that Jesus' death must be supplemented 
with good works in order to be effectual for our salvation. And it's astonishing to me the number of believing, observant Catholics who don't fully understand that. They want to believe the same gospel that you and I believe. The, the, the point being that Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism, the second charge that they're bringing against him doesn't make any sense. Rebelling against Israel and Judaism? No. Verse 15, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept. We agree about that. That there'll be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Everybody lives forever. It's just a question of where. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. I believe what they believe, Paul says. I believe what their scriptures teach. And because I do, I know I'm going to stand before God and give an account for my life. And so, of course I haven't betrayed Judaism. God invented Judaism. Okay, Paul, what about the third charge? Desecrating the temple. What about that, Paul? Because we can still kill you for that one. Verse 17, Paul says, okay, let's talk about that. After many years, at the end of his third missionary journey, I came back to Jerusalem to bring alms and offerings to my nation, to Israel, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia, the Roman province of Asia, the city of Ephesus specifically, found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. Yeah, I was in the temple. I wasn't doing anything out of the ordinary. I certainly didn't have Gentiles with me. That was the original accusation back in chapter 21. I wasn't doing anything unusual or inappropriate. I was just being ceremonially cleansed to make an offering. And what's more, Paul says, still verse 18, none of these guys were there. Ananias, the elders, Tertullus, None of them were there. The whole thing started when a, a, a bunch of people from Ephesus started throwing around wild accusations. If we're going to talk about this, you've got to produce the witnesses. I say that what you're accusing me of never happened. Profaning in the temple, complete fiction. And verse 19, they ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything to say against me. But they're not, so you've got to dismiss the charge for lack of evidence. But Paul's not done. Verse 22, he says, now why don't we talk about what we're talking about as long as we're here? Sorry, verse 20. Let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me when I stood before the council. Because that's what's really griped their cookies. Let's talk about that. That's the heart of the matter, verse 21. This one statement which I cried out standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged by you this day. I did that. And we know that he did that because we read that in Acts 23.6. And when we talked about it a couple weeks ago, I suggested at the time that by saying that, Paul was lobbing a grenade into the middle of the proceedings. I suggested that Paul understood, he looked around and, and he read the room and, and, and he concluded that he wasn't going to get a fair shake so he threw a grenade, he, he hatched a plan to, to set the Pharisees and the Sadducees against one another. Brother in the fellowship approached me last week and he said, is it possible that that isn't what Paul was doing? Is it possible Paul was actually trying to build up and not tear down? Was Paul maybe trying to, to build a bridge to the Pharisees? He saw that Ananias and the other Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection were trying to railroad him. And so Paul says, hey, Pharisees, 
you, 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 you believe me. I mean, at least we both believe in a resurrection of the dead. And if we can agree on a resurrection of the dead, is it really so far-fetched to believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Is that maybe what Paul was going for? I can't rule it out. I got to say, it never occurred to me. I've never heard it taught that way. But it makes sense. It would be consistent with Paul's character. It would be consistent with the approach to ministry that we see Paul use in other places. Think about Mars Hill in Acts 17. Paul falls all over himself. He pulls out all the stops to try to find some element of commonality with his Gentile audience. But either way, regardless of what his intention was back at the Antonia Fortress, in Caesarea, in the palace, verse 21, Paul says to Felix, let's be honest, that's the real reason I'm here. What they're really upset about is the fact that I follow a man named Jesus, who I claim to be the resurrected Messiah of Israel. And here's the thing, Felix, that's not a crime. And when Felix heard these things, verse 22, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he understood a little bit about Christianity. He adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias the commander comes down, I'll make a decision on your case. Felix had been governor of Judea five, six, seven years, and before that he held a position in the government over Samaria. So he was familiar with all things Jewish, and he also had a Jewish wife. So he, had, he knew a thing or two about Christianity. And he knew the quandary he was in. He knew that Christians weren't revolutionaries, so Paul wasn't guilty of the first charge. He knew the Sanhedrin hadn't convicted Paul of anything under their law, so he couldn't be guilty of the second charge. And there were no witnesses to the alleged crime against the temple, so you've got to throw out the third charge. He knew that Paul wasn't guilty. He knew that Paul was a Roman citizen. But he also knew if he just let Paul go, he didn't be in for a world of hurt. If he let Paul go, he'd have a real problem with the Jewish leadership back in Jerusalem. And he didn't want that because he liked his gig. It was good to be the governor, particularly when you have a, an income stream from all of the illicit organized crime that, that you're nudge, nudge, wink, wink allowing. He had a good lifestyle. He didn't want to jeopardize it by letting Paul go and making the Jewish leadership mad. So he decided, verse 22, to stall. When Lysias the commander comes down, the Roman commander, I'll make a decision on your case. That's not necessary. That's nonsense. Lysias had already said, chapter 23, verse 29, Paul's innocent of anything under Roman law. I don't know about their law. So Lysias couldn't testify to anything. This was just a convenient excuse. And what happens next just confirms that. Verse 23, he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends or to pro provide for or, or visit him. Keep here means keep under guard. Keep Paul in custody, but not in chains, not in confinement. His friends could come and go. His friends could visit. His friends could send money. Felix clearly doesn't think that Paul's a threat of any kind. So Paul ends up in kind of a, a legal no-man's land. He's not guilty of anything, but he's not free to go either. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him considering the faith in Christ. Some historical accounts suggest that it was actually Drusilla who urged Felix to call for Paul, that this conversation was her idea. I don't think Paul cared. He just wanted to talk to anybody about Jesus. 
Now, as he reasoned, as as Paul spoke about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go, just go away for now, and when I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. Now, at first glance, we read this righteousness, self-control, judgment. That's a weird grab bag of topics. Paul, why are you just grabbing random things to talk about? Why not just share the gospel? Look more closely, we realize righteousness, self-control, judgment. That is the gospel. This is, this is everything that Paul had written to the Romans just a few months earlier in his time. That God's law set forth a standard of righteousness, which man must meet or suffer judgment. God is holy. His law reflects that it codifies it. And if, and if we don't live up to it, we suffer judgment. Except history, history of Israel, history of humanity, tell us it's impossible to keep the law just by self-control. I can't keep the law in my own strength. The purpose of the law, in fact, was to tell us, was to prove to us we can't keep the law. All have sinned, all have broken the law, none have kept the law, which is why we need forgiveness which is why we need a Savior, which is why Jesus stood in our place and paid for our crimes. Righteousness, self-control, judgment, that's why we need Jesus. That is the gospel. And we can understand then why that would make Felix very, very afraid. Because besides the robbery, besides the murders, besides the adultery, he's standing there with Drusilla, who was the sister of Herod Agrippa II, she was married to a king at a, at a young age, but when she is 16, Felix convinced her to divorce him and come marry him and come be his third wife. So everything about that relationship was unholy. She broke Jewish law, divorcing her husband, and, and became his third Everything about it was unholy. So to be standing there having the conversation with her, well, that's, that's more than awkward. So once again, Felix stalls. Doesn't want to hear anything more about the gospel. Paul's words brought him under conviction. His response was, I don't want to hear it. He was the guy that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2, who's, who heard the conviction of the Lord and whose heart was hardened against it because he loved his sin too much. He didn't want to turn from it. And he doesn't want his wife to get any ideas, so let's talk about later. Except that later for Felix meant the same as later meant to your parents. When your parents said, we'll talk about it later, it's never going to happen. So question, why not just release Paul? Just send him away. All he's doing is bugging you. Get the voice of conviction out of the palace and out of your life. I mean, he's, he's still not guilty. Yeah, but the Jewish leaders would still be upset. And... Verse 26, Luke tells us, meanwhile, better translation, at the same time, while all of this is going on, Felix also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Why release Paul for free if he can get a bribe out of the deal, if he can ransom Paul? Therefore, verse 26, Felix sent for Paul more often and conversed with him. Almost certainly not because Felix was interested in the things of God, but as an excuse to keep dropping hints. So Paul, how about your friends? They sending you any money? 
Paul said back in verse 17 that he came to Jerusalem with alms and an offering. So if you're Felix, you're thinking somebody in this guy's circle is loaded. Eventually, someone is going to pony up the bucks for his release. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Why does Felix care if he's leaving anyway? Answer, leaving wasn't Felix's idea. 59 or 60 AD, there was a riot in Caesarea. It started as a brawl between a group of Jews and a group of Gentiles. When Felix sends in troops to break up the, the hubbub, they were disproportionately brutal, in fact, cruel, to the Jews involved. A bunch of them were killed. At which point the Jewish leadership complains to Rome, hey, you got to do something about your guy Felix because he hates Jews. Nero doesn't like drama unless he's causing it. Nero orders Felix replaced. Probably would have had him killed except Felix had a brother who was in tight with Nero. Point being, Felix is not just on his way out the door. He's on his way out the door to Rome to answer to the charge, you're being brutal to Jews, this would not have been a good time for him to make the Jewish leadership even madder at him. Would not be a good time to antagonize them further. So Paul stays in custody in Caesarea for two years, not literally bound, probably had the same liberty as when he first arrived, but he wasn't free to leave either. For two years. Two years. Why does God allow that? Now, diligent Bible scholars out there are saying, well, hang on, two years doesn't have to mean two full years, not if we're reckoning time the way the Jews reckon time. Two years could mean parts of two years. If his time in custody started in November of 58 and it ended in October of 59, well, part of 58 and part of 59, the Jews would call that two years. And my answer is, so what? <laughs> I mean, that might be true. I don't know how we're reckoning time. I don't know exactly what two years means. Luke doesn't tell us. But the question stands. Whether we're talking about two full calendar years or part of two years, why does God allow Paul, arguably the MVP of the early church, to sit out an entire season? Maybe two seasons. Why is Paul on the bench instead of in the game? Won't keep you in suspense. We can cut to the ending right now. Because you already know. Why is Paul sidelined for some or all of two years? We don't know. <laughs> God, because God, God ordained it. That was an appointed time. You can search for Genesis to Revelation. God, it doesn't say. Just like Scripture might not say why God isn't opening a door for you to serve in the ministry that you really want to serve in right now. Just like Scripture probably doesn't say why God isn't bringing you the spouse that you long for, the child that you're praying for. Why has God not led doctors to a cure for cancer? Why is it taking so many people so long to recover from COVID? Why is my prodigal son, my prodigal daughter still wandering out in the wilderness? Why can't I find a job that pays what I need? When will the appliances in my house or the parts in my car or the parts in my body stop breaking? How long, Lord? And I venture to guess every one of us here has something happening in our lives making us ask that question. How long will this go on, God? Well, when will this end, Lord? And is there really a point to all this waiting? 
And as we cry out, most of the time, all of the time if you're me, <laughs> we don't get a clear answer, do we? And we can find ourselves wondering, how can all of this waiting, this time on the sidelines, this time in the penalty box, this time of not knowing, this time of not hearing, how can it possibly be good? What's encouraging, though, and what I cling to, real honestly, is why the Bible may not tell us why our particular season of waiting is good. But the Bible is clear God will use it for good. Because he is good. I think about the story of Jesus and Lazarus a lot in connection to this. And especially how that story begins. John 11, you might want to turn there because there's some, there's some things that are worthy of underlining in what I'm about to say, I think. John 11, it starts off with John telling us how Jesus hears Lazarus is sick. Lazarus of Bethany. Lazarus, brother of Mary and Martha. Lazarus, brother of Mary who anointed Jesus with that expensive perfume. That Lazarus. Verse 3, Mary and Martha send word to Jesus, hey, our brother is way sick. And verse 5, John tells us Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So, out of an abundance of love for them, Jesus rushed immediately to Bethany and healed Lazarus. Except no. Verse 6, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. But put those two verses together. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so and I think that so at the beginning of verse 6 is worthy of a circle or a star or an arrow or something. So, when he heard that he was sick, he loved them so much that when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he loved them so that when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more places in the place that he was. Cause and effect. He stayed because he loved him. And that seems weird. How is that love? How's, imagine Mary and Martha, you get a message back from Jesus. You send Jesus a message. Hey, Lazarus is sick. I think he's dying. You get a message back. Got your message. Going to stay here a few more days. Love you, mean it. Jay. <laughs> but notice what Jesus says to his disciples when they finally do head to Bethany. Verse 14, Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad about it. I'm glad for your sake that I was not there. Why? That you might believe. You're, you're glad that Lazarus died? I mean, this gets, hard, this gets harder, not, not easier. But we know how the story ends. Verse 41, the stone over Lazarus' grave is removed. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I'm saying this for the benefit of the people watching, that they might believe that you sent me. And at Jesus' command, Lazarus rises and Resurrected Lazarus walks onto the cave. What's going on? That's what Mary or Martha wants to know. Back in verse 21, Martha seems to ask, why did you wait? If he hadn't waited, he wouldn't have died. But by that time, he'd already given the disciples the answer. If I moved any faster, I might have gotten there before he died. And if I'd gotten there when Lazarus was sick, I would have healed him. 
but I wanted to do something better. Healing him would have been good, but I wanted to do what was best. Healing him would have, would have been loving, but I wanted to love even more. I wanted not just to tell you, but to show you dramatically, verse 25. I wanted to demonstrate. I wanted to prove I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. You asked me to do something good. And instead I did something best. Now not all of God's delays are wrapped up that neatly. Not all of them end up with the purpose tied up in a, in a, in a bow with, with, with the purpose understood and revealed so clearly. We talked about Jesus being born at an appointed time. What made that time perfect in God's eyes? Well, that was the time that was prophesied. No, God wrote the prophecy, so that doesn't answer the question. 2,000 years of, of history for the people of Israel. The last four centuries, God's silent. Not speaking to them in any way. Why the delay? Why so long? And the answer is we don't know. You can read a lot of books by a lot of people who speculated it had something to do with the Roman Empire. The combination of a one-world language, at least you know, in the Western world, roads connecting major cities, roads better than the roads we build today, and an imperially enforced peace, the Pax Romana, less conflict, less bloodshed than, than the world had known for centuries, all combining so that the gospel could go forth as, as, you know, as far as it did, as fast as it did. Was that a unique moment in human history? Maybe. I, I sometimes wonder, and I've never heard anybody talk about this, so I'm probably wrong, but it, did it have something to do with Rome establishing crucifixion as the preferred mean of, of executing criminals? Because if you think about the cross, it, it's just epic brutality combined with utter simplicity. And it makes the cross a uniquely powerful symbol. How would you symbolize a firing squad? How would you symbolize if Jesus had been stoned or buried alive or had his throat slit? You know, Gail, when he was here, talked about, you know, you, you, you can't really write a song at the electric chair, at the electric chair, when I first saw it. Is there something about the brutality and the simplicity of the cross that got factored into his timing? But we don't know. What we know is that God doesn't do anything without a purpose, and his purposes are always good because he's always good. His purposes are always good, even if we can't see it in the moment. David, in, in Psalm 22, clung to that. David in Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime and you don't hear. And in the night season, I'm not silent and you're not listening. We tend to think of those words prophetically. We tend to think of those words pointing to Jesus at the cross because Jesus pointed to those words at the cross, right? 
One of his last statements on the cross, he repeated that first line. But before they were the words of Jesus, they were the words of David, right? David lived that. David was enduring a difficult season. David was waiting for God's answer. David was crying out. But what does David do next? And that season of waiting, that season of anguish, after crying out to God and, and asking, when? How long? Are you even there? David presses on, and, and he says, verse 3, he, he declares, verse 3, but, this is how I'm feeling, but, this is what I know, you're holy enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. When David couldn't see God's answers, he chose to remember God's faithfulness. A thousand years of faithfulness at that point. And that was enough. Even as David continues to describe his plight with words that will later accurately describe the crucifixion, that's how much anguish he was in, that's how bad it was, whatever was happening, he avoided getting stuck in a pit by remembering past examples of God's faithfulness and meditating on what those examples told him about God's character. That God was a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God. And that the time of waiting didn't change that. That got David through. It got him through until he was able to say, verse 21, you've answered me. And I'll declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I'll praise you. You who fear the Lord, you praise him too. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him because he's worthy. And fear him, revere him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. When he cried to him, he heard. When I cried to him, David says, he heard. And when we cry to him, family, he hears. We can do the same thing that David did in, in, in delays and deferrals and postponements and setbacks. We can do what David did. We can look past what we don't know and focus on what we do know. We can look past what we don't see and focus on what we believe and who we believe. And we can believe that delays are in no way proof that God doesn't love us. They're simply the ways in which God is loving us and preparing to love us. Ann and I are doing that right now, just, just real honestly. God, why after 11 months is Ann not recovered from surgery? Why after more than a year am I still dealing with COVID? Why are there young people that we poured our lives into, young men and women who are still out there wandering in the wilderness? When are you going to provide the resources, Lord, to do the things at Calvary that you've promised us that you want to do? And I mean, and a dozen other things. And every time we, we cry out with one or more of those questions, we, we try to 
come back to God's past faithfulness in, in, in his word and in our lives. I think back to 1997 when I first sensed God calling me to ministry, and I wanted it. I was ready. I was tired of business. I was tired of travel. I was way tired of corporate America. Here I am, Lord. You pick, 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 pick me, Lord. Pick, pick, here. <laughs> and he didn't. For three or four years, he didn't. And those were three hard years. Business almost failed. My key staff all left for better gigs. Working 80-hour weeks to keep afloat. Traveling incessantly. I'll be honest, I was angry at times. Why, Lord? How does this make sense? How is this better than ministry? And to this day, I'm sure I don't know all of the answer. But I know when the Lord finally, answer, uh, finally opened the door for me to step into full-time ministry. Ann and I were married. 1997, we weren't, and beginning of 97, we weren't even dating. If I'd been a pastoral intern when we reconnected, I don't know if we ever would have gotten married. I don't know if I would have made time in my life to pursue the relationship. So that was good. 1997, I would have been able to close the doors on the business and walk away. Payables and receivables would have about washed each other, shutter the business, start something new. And I, and I told that, because I, I told God that. I wasn't sure he knew. <laughs> God, let me, let, let, let's do some math here. But I would have been starting from nothing. I was okay with that. God wasn't, and wouldn't, you know, four years later, I was able to sell the business. It went from worthless to worth enough that I could go on staff as a pastoral intern for what the church paid pastoral interns, which was not enough. God used that time to allow me to go into ministry. And he used that time to forge a testimony. In 97, if people had said, hey, why didn't you go into ministry? My answer would have been, well, I failed in business, so that was kind of the only thing left. But, but when God actually opened the door, vendors, staff, contractors, clients, why would you want to walk away from this? You've worked so hard. It's, it's really clicking. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly profitable. You're making a good living. And I got to tell them, yeah, but I'm going to something even better. God used that four years to craft a testimony. When I went on staff, here's something else the Lord was doing. When I went on staff, it was like God couldn't open doors fast enough. Here's an opportunity. Here's a ministry. Here's some more responsibility. Bing, bing, bing. And that was, that was not typical. In fact, in 1997, looking back, the church was fully staffed. In fact, it was overstaffed, so much so that in 98, the board of the church said, yeah, we're a little bloated relative to the ministry that we're doing. And so they, they mandated some fairly broad layoffs. If I'd been on board at that time, even as an intern you know, last in, first out kind of a thing, I would have been one of those casualties. But four years later, it's September of 2001. 90 days later, I've about got my feet under me. Assistant pastor leaves to plant a church in South Jersey. Youth pastor leaves to be part of a church in Germany. Missions pastor goes to plant a church in Italy. Intern hired ahead of me decides to be part of a church in Florida. Opportunity after opportunity. Why? It was the time that God had appointed for me. Speaking of September 11th, though, just one more story. Ann and I get married in 98, and we start trying to have a family pretty quickly. We're in our late 30s. We'd known each other for a decade. 
we're in our late 30s if, if, if you know, if clocks and times and things and if things don't happen soon. Well, they didn't happen soon. And the delay wasn't long in, in, in terms of what some people go through. We, we have friends that, that prayed for children for, for eight, nine years before God opened them. But, but, but it was long enough to be concerning for us. It was long enough to be praying and asking, why, Lord? How long, Lord? You, you tell us to be fruitful and multiply. Why are you delaying? Why, why is this a bad thing, God? Aren't children a good thing? But again, God insists on doing the best thing. And I don't know the full answer. I don't, I don't claim to fully understand God's timing. But one thing I think about every September 11th, September 11th, 2001, as the second plane hit the World Trade Center, Anne was in an OB appointment. She was there for Michaela's 20-week ultrasound. If she hadn't been, she would have most likely been with the team our business had in New York that day. And most of the team, there were a half a dozen or so, were coming down from Connecticut. A couple were already in northern Manhattan. Anne would have been coming up from New Jersey, taking the PATH train and transferring to the number one subway. The transfer from the PATH train to the number one subway happens in the basement of the World Trade Center. Becky, why don't, why don't you come on back up? But what, what are your stories? Those are, those, are, those are our Ebenezers, our stones of remembrance. Our remembrances of God's faithfulness in our lives. What are yours? Your stories, your friends' stories, your family members' stories. Stories that remind you that God's delays are not denials. And God not answering prayer now doesn't mean that he's going to answer prayer. Never doesn't mean that he doesn't love you always. Because he does. He loves us always. He's faithful always. Why does God keep all on the sideline for two years? Was there someone in Caesarea that we don't read about but that Paul needed to witness to? Was there someone in Rome that he needed to avoid who would have had Paul summarily executed when there was more ministry to do? Did he keep Paul there ensconced in the, in the castle so he wouldn't fall victim to a plague or wouldn't get killed by assassins? Did, did he want to make sure that Paul witnessed to Festus or Agrippa? But did it have something to do with Luke's life? Was he working out timing in, in Luke's life so that Luke could rejoin Paul and travel with him to Rome in Acts 27 and Acts 28 and, and record everything? We don't know. Just like you probably don't know the reasons for the waiting that you're going through. Maybe one day you will. Maybe in heaven you will. But in the meantime, we can't let what we don't know blind us to what we do know. And what we know is we're God's children, right? And God only answers the prayers of his children one of two ways. Yes, or hang on, I've got something better. When God delays, it means he doesn't want to settle. And he doesn't want us to settle. What we're asking might be good but he wants to do what's best. He wants to give us what's best. He wants to do through us what's best. God knew that healing Lazarus would be good. Nothing bad about it. But he wanted to do something so much better, they didn't even know to pray for it. Something that would have an impact not just on those gathered outside the cave that day, but 
on untold thousands upon thousands of believers for hundreds and hundreds of years. God wants to give us what's best, wants to do what's best, wants to love us, wants to love others through us in the way he knows is best. Hang on to that, he asks us. Remember that, he reminds us. Remember me, he, he beckons us. Even as we wait. Lord, thank you for revealing so clearly your character, your nature, your promises, your love. Father, be with us in times of waiting.